as I always say, and I'm sure they are already out the door, uh, we do have children's church for nursery all the way up to those in second grade. Um, for the rest, you can stay with us here today. And uh, we are going to be reading from uh, Acts chapter 4. And we are going to be reading from Acts chapter 4. We're going to go ahead and read uh, starting in verse 1. And then just for our time together, we're going to read all the way through to uh, verse 12. um, Just to kind of give us a good understanding of what's happening in the book of Acts at this passage. We're going to go further than that. We're going to talk a little bit more about kind of what happens beyond that. But for our time together this morning and our time of scripture reading, we're going to read Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1 and reading through to verse 12. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And starting in verse, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we read these things. It says, And while they were speaking to the people, now this, while this they, that is John and Peter, um, and this is after the, uh, the man who was lame had been uh, able to, been given the ability to walk, it says this, And while they were speaking to the people, the, pri- the, the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees confronted them. And because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the and uh, the next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them: By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter. Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if you are being examined, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was he was healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Please be seated. As I was preparing for the, the message this morning, and you know, you're kind of reading this, and I love reading uh, books like the book of Acts in, in Scripture, the ones that, that are, are really a, a story. You know, they're telling us a story, and, and really where we're, we're kind of jumping into today is the continuation of everything that happened yesterday. And if you remember kind of, or not yesterday, last week, what we read about last week, um, this week went by really quick to me, it felt like yesterday. 
And uh, if, as, think about what happened last week. And, and last week, we had uh, John and Peter going to the temple. They're walking in. They see the man who was, who was lame. His legs didn't work. Um, he was like 40 years old. He'd grown up in Jerusalem. People knew who he was. He always would sit and beg by the same gate, that beautiful gate that was made from bronze and all that type of stuff. And, and they healed him. And they healed him, they looked at him, and they said, look at us, and they said, and I have to do it the old, I think it's the King James way, it's a gold and silver have I none, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And this creates this huge crowd, and all these things happen, and so we have this man who had been lame for, for, it doesn't necessarily ever say that he was born lame, but had been lame for a significant period of his life, for decades, who is now up and walking, and in fact, he even says he's leaping and dancing, and the people are, are running to see what has happened because a miracle has happened in the temple, and this gives Peter and John this opportunity to teach and proclaim the, the good, names of, good name of Jesus, and then, and then we get into chapter 4, and the first thing that kind of popped in my head and everything that transpires is no good deed goes unpunished. Have you, ever, have you ever said that? Have you ever kind of heard that or, or said that or even thought that in your time? This, okay, good, I'm hearing some yes. There's a, there is an idea here that when we do something good for another person, that we should almost expect that something bad is going to happen because we did it. And a lot of times we'll think that, and sometimes we'll say it. Some examples of this might be you help somebody who's having car trouble. You pull off on the side of the road. You, you help that person out. And then because you help them out, maybe you run a little late to work or to church, and someone gives you a stern talking to. You get in trouble or reprimanded at work because you ran late when the reason you ran late is because you stopped to help someone else. You give a gift to a friend and then you find out later that friend was talking about you behind your back, or that friend ends up siding with, with someone else and, and kind of getting rid of you as a friend. You help your neighbor with yard work only to get poison ivy and get covered in, in a rash. That was not meant to be funny, but okay, that's a, <laughs> hit a nerve on that one. Um, and then we see in our passage today, Peter and John heal a man that was lame, had been lame for years and years only to find themselves arrested and thrown in jail. The interesting thing is, is this idea of uh, no good deed goes unpunished is actually a very old one. We see some of the earliest statements kind of saying that all the way back in the 1200s. So think about that for a second. This is an 800-year-old idea. And in the, in the 1200s, it was written, and the, and the first time it was written, it was actually written to say the opposite of what one of our, our great Christian theologians of back in the day would say. In fact, it was Thomas Aquinas who initially said in the 1200s that the evil deed is unpunished, that, that no, ev no evil deed is unpunished by God, the just judge. Therefore, no good deed is unrewarded. It's interesting, we have kind of said these things of this idea of, well, no good deed goes unpunished, but when that was said, it was actually said poking fun at what a Christian theologian of his time had said. And while we acknowledge that we live in a sinful, fallen world, 
And because we live in a sinful, fallen world that, that sometimes, you know, bad things happen to what we would say bad things happen to good people and good things may happen to bad people, and we acknowledge that. But I would probably say when we look at, at something and say, well, no good deed goes unpunished, I want us to think about this passage today. Because we look at Peter and John getting arrested as a bad thing. Like, man, look at that. They, caught, they healed somebody and they got arrested. But I want to challenge you a little bit today. What if what happened to John and what happened to, to Peter today, what if it was a good thing? What if getting arrested was actually a good thing and getting arrested actually opened up the door for the gospel to go forward in a way that it hadn't been able to before? And what if when we serve God and when we do good things, and sometimes it seems like negative things are happening because of the good things we've done, what if those negative things are an opportunity for us to have an even more bold witness for the Lord? I want to present the, the passage to you today in kind of a, 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 a little bit interesting way in that the, 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 the Sanhedrin, this ruling body in Jerusalem, asked John and, and Peter, uh, or really they kind of asked two questions in general. The first one is to John and Peter, and the second one is really to themselves. And I want us to see how the answer to these two questions shows how God is moving in their midst, even though they're not aware of it. The first question is found in verse 7. So, as, as we've already said, we've had, we've had the healing, we've had the, um, the opportunity for, for Peter and for John to proclaim the gospel. In fact, we get another one of Peter's sermons um, in this part, and, and he's proclaimed that. And then all of this has happened, and then starting in verse 1, we see the, the leadership, the kind of the leadership in Jerusalem, really the temple leadership become aware of what's happening. Now, bear in mind, it's about 3 o'clock when, when John and Peter start walking into the temple. If we go back a chapter, we see that it was about 3 o'clock, and by the time the, the leadership of, of the temple realized what's going on, it's, it's evening time. We're getting to about 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night. The sun is starting to go down. So John and Peter have been teaching and proclaiming and telling people about Jesus for quite literally hours. It's interesting to note as we look at this that the arrest really did not have anything to do with the healing. They used the healing to kind of confront the, the Sanhedrin and confront the leadership about, about their hypocrisy. But notice again what it says the reason for the arrest was. This is in verse 2. It says they confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So it wasn't so much the healing. In fact, maybe even in the initial kind of interaction, they didn't realize that this man had been healed, but rather they were upset because they were teaching and preaching in the temple. The healing had been a platform that they might address the crowds and preach the good news of the gospel. In fact, it says, if we go back to Acts chapter 3, verse 11, it says that the people were literally running towards them because of what had happened. But the teaching that they were teaching about was very messianic in nature. 
They were preaching about Jesus, and they were preaching about the resurrection of the dead, and they were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And this made them very, very uncomfortable. Because this, was, this messianic talk was the type of stuff that created problems for the leadership and might damage or mess up what was going on. And so the question that they ask, going into verse 7, the question that they ask is they, I want you to think about this just for, for, uh, for the storyline, for the plot of the thing. They have been brought in, it's the next morning, they've been brought in, and now it says quite literally that they have been surrounded by the leadership body. And so it, like the way the, the way the writing is done is they are literally in their midst, completely surrounded by the Sanhedrin. And they ask this question, they say, by whose authority or in whose name are you teaching these things? Are you preaching these things? This was a, an issue of, of, of permission. They weren't really concerned about um, about the healing. They weren't concerned about, about much of what was going on, but they wanted to know who on earth gave them permission to preach and teach the things that they were preaching and teaching. And so now we find ourselves in this weird spot that they didn't like what was being taught. They didn't like that it might upset the apple cart, and they wanted to know why it was happening at all. They wanted to kind of stifle it because if they said, well, nobody, they could say, then you need to be quiet. They wanted to kind of thwart them and and confuse them, and and they viewed themselves as the the high and mighty and the smart people of the group, and these guys were just simple-minded guys from Galilee, and they just needed to, if they thought that if they surrounded them, if if they got in there and they intimidated them, that maybe that would take care of things. Their concern was more about upsetting what they had and upsetting the apple cart, if you will, in the eyes of the Romans, in the eyes of kind of the power dynamic of the uh, temple than they were about what was being taught, what the subject matter was being taught, and, and why they were doing what they were doing. The Pharisees have always been this way. In fact, we can go to John chapter 11, starting in verse 47, and we read this about these, this same group of people. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, convened the Sanhedrin, and they were saying, what are we going to do since this man, this man being Jesus, is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This was the primary concern. This was why they were asking the question, by whose authority are you doing this? Because they were concerned that, that if too much happened, if, if too many people followed, if too many people started to believe in Jesus and, and trust in him and started to proclaim Christ as the Messiah, that the Romans would eventually step in and cause all sorts of trouble for them. They could, which they ultimately did in 70 AD, they could destroy the temple. They could remove the leadership of the Sadducees and of the, the chief priest and all of that type of stuff. And they could just dramatically change what they had worked so hard to build. 
They were concerned about that in Jesus' day, and now they show that same concern with Peter and John. In fact, it is highly likely that some of the same people in John chapter 11 are now standing here among the Sanhedrin with, J, with John and with Peter. They wanted the movement to just go away, and they had hoped that by bringing them in and asking them this question, it would intimidate them to silence, and they would preach the name of Jesus no more. But that's not what happened. See, again, we can look at, at them being arrested. I want you to think about this for, for a moment. They're preaching. They get arrested. Probably doesn't look good. Temple guards, temple people come in, scoop up Peter and John, take them to jail, and they let them sit for a night. I think that's, to me, that's an important deal. They sat there in the temple prison for a night, waiting to to go. They finally get drug out, first thing in the morning, brought in, and they go in straight in into literally dozens of people all staring at them. And then they get asked, who, by whose authority and whose name do you, do you teach these things? Are you doing this? Where did you, who gave you the right to come into our house and say these things. And they're probably thinking, all right, we've let them sleep on it. They know we mean business. We have, I think we have successfully intimidated these two guys. We're going to be done with this in a second. But that is not what happens. You know, I can't help but wonder if Peter grinned. You ever get asked a question and you know you have a good answer? Sometimes it's worth getting in trouble because you know you got that good answer. And could you imagine all this transpired in the last 24 hours and they, and they had these, this Sanhedrin, as ignorant as they were, had the audacity to look Peter straight in the eye and go, by whose name do you do this? And he probably looked and went, <laughs> whose name? You want to know whose name I do these things under? Do you want to know the name? The name? The the name? You want to know the name? Oh, let me tell you the name. In fact, we can go back just one chapter and we can see very clearly whose name he is doing these things. Go back, flip the page for just a moment to Acts chapter 3 verse 6. And when we look at what he says to that man who was laying there, lame, lame for years, begging, in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, we see the name. It says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. You want to know whose name I do these things? It is in the name of Jesus. Not only that, he says, it is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ whom you crucified, but whom God rose from the dead. And that you rejected, but God made the chief cornerstone. And, and I love this, he says, and there is salvation both the physical salvation we see in this man and the spiritual salvation that we all need in no one else but Jesus. 
They thought they were going to get an intimidated, scared couple of fishermen, but instead they were met with bold, spirit-filled testimony by both Peter and John to the most powerful people in their world. You want to know whose name I do these things and whose name I teach? I will tell you whose name, and it is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And we see his salvation in this man, and we, you and me, Sanhedrin, we need the salvation that comes through him. If there is ever a full circle moment in Peter, it is right here. If we go back into the the book of Luke, remember Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. If we go back into the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31, we read these words, Simon, Simon, this is Jesus talking to Peter, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Peter said, Lord, I'll go, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, Jesus said, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. Just a few weeks prior, literally the same day that these words were spoken to Peter, Peter did that very thing. And here's the thing. Think about this for a second. Peter denied even knowing Jesus to nobodies. Not that they're not important, but to servant girls and and people in the crowd and and literally people that, that apart from telling on him, they couldn't do anything to him. But in that moment, in that day, on the the night that Jesus was betrayed, he denied even knowing him, even to the point of calling a curse down upon himself if he did know him. And we fast forward, but a few, few weeks, two months, maybe a little bit more. And Peter is now speaking to the most powerful people in his world apart from the Roman army itself. And through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who denied Christ now proclaimed him boldly. We talked this morning about what keeps us from trusting in God in Sunday school class. If you don't have a Sunday school class, if you don't attend Sunday school, I strongly encourage you to come be a part of a Sunday school class because so often Sunday school becomes a primer for Sunday morning worship. And we talked about that. And I want you to see what happens. This is what happens when we fully, wholly trust in God and put our faith in God. A man who was marked by, by intimidation and denying, who, who was known as betraying Jesus because he was scared, is now the one who is standing before people who can kill him, proclaiming the name of Jesus, and salvation through that man. Wow. Won't he do it? And here's the cool thing. The same spirit that is in Peter in our passage 
Look again, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. See, the Holy Spirit can do some amazing things. And the Holy Spirit can take someone who's, who may be scared or intimidated and make them bold. Someone who is dead, uh, dead afraid of being in front of people and make them proclaimers and singers. The Holy Spirit can take someone who, who thought that they had no hope left and give them tons of hope. The Holy Spirit can do amazing, amazing things in you and make you something that you never thought you could be, be if you place your tr- hope and trust in Jesus. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can suddenly make you tall and good looking. But let me tell you this. When you put your faith in Jesus and you fully surrender yourself to him and for, to his will in your life, whatever God has called you to do, whatever ministry, whatever purpose, whatever thing, he will give you everything you need to accomplish that purpose. If, you're scared, if, you want, if you feel like God's calling you to go on a mission trip, and maybe that's to eastern Kentucky or maybe that's to southern, South America, but you're scared of it and you're scared to do it, he will equip you. If you want to share your testimony with a friend or a family member, but you don't even know how to give that, get that conversation started and it, and it intimidated, intimidates you, God will equip you. If you see a need in the church, but you have no, like a need for ministry, a need to, to, to be there for somebody or to share the good news of the gospel in some particular area, but you have no idea how to even get it started, rest assured, God will do it. And that's what the Spirit does. Jesus was there. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all that's happening here, we see that not one point are they really even concerned about whether what they're saying is true. And he's saying, listen, you ask whose authority I do this, but I'm going to tell you right now, it isn't Jesus. So then let's, let's keep going. Let's look at what happens next in our passage today. It says that when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained, and they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus, and since they saw the man who was healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves saying, and here's our second question. You ready for the second question? It's this. What should we do with these men? You can almost picture it. You can almost see that they said, like, Jesus, or, uh, like Peter turns this time of testimony into a, literally a sermon about Jesus is the Christ and that they need to be saved in the name of Jesus. And when it's done, they go, dang it. Now what? And they go, uh, I, you know, uh, go outside. And this, wasn't a bit, this wouldn't have been atypical. This is what they would have done. They would have had people come in and give their testimony, and then they would have asked them to leave the room, and then they would begin to talk about, okay, what are we going to do in this situation? 
And notice they say, they look at one another and they say, what are we going to do? We thought that they would fold. We thought that they would recant. We thought that they would say that they were sorry and never bring it up again. And, that then, and then it would be done and finished and behind us. But instead, we got a sermon. And we saw how they boldly and powerfully proclaimed the name of Jesus. And then look what he says. He says, what are we going to do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And so we see the Sanhedrin in a very peculiar spot. If they affirm them, then they are acknowledging Jesus as the Christ and that the gospel is true. But if they reject them, they fear the people. They fear that if they reject them and they punish them and they do something, that the crowds will start to say, we saw these men heal this man that was lame. We saw what happened and you are trying to have them killed or you are trying to have them imprisoned or you want to hand them over to the, the Romans just like you did the one that they follow. Something, and they, they're afraid that they will lose their power and influence. The question is never about whether the claims are true. Really, the evidence is quite clear. They have, they have, if you think about this, so let's talk about evidence for a second. Here's the evidence the Sanhedrin is presented with. There is a clear sign from God regarding healing. A man who has been lame, who has spent every day out in front of the temple, all the people of Jerusalem know him and know, know his story and know his background, is now suddenly walking, leaping, dancing, and is in the temple. These men who did the healing and who even the one who has been healed attributes the healing to their words, these men were clearly followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Not only are these men from Galilee, but also they had been seen with Jesus, that they had been, been associated with Jesus. These men were simple, untrained men who had followed Jesus. Notice, simple, untrained men. These were not charlatans or, or con artists. These were not people that they would have had to wa you know, watch closely as they tried to perform a magic trick. These were fishermen. And they dressed like fishermen, and they talked like fishermen. Probably by now they didn't smell like fishermen. But they knew who they were. And not only this, but these men, these untrained, unlearned fishermen standing before them were speaking boldly and sticking to the claims of Jesus, specifically that Jesus had risen from the dead. And see, there's one other piece of evidence that doesn't get mentioned here, but I think is worth noting. All the Sanhedrin would have had to do with James and John in this moment to end it was provide the body of Jesus. That's it. They had looked at these men and then said, the Jesus whom you crucified, which they could not deny, and whom God raised from the dead. And here's the interesting thing. All they had to do was pray, prove that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Provide the body. But God raised him from the dead. No, he didn't. There he is. But they couldn't do that. 
of the evidence was they knew Jesus was dead. They saw him die. They saw him breathe his last breath. They saw him pierce his side. They saw them take down the body, wrap it up, put it in the tomb. They saw the Romans seal the tomb off and put their seal over it. They knew he was dead. But in this moment, they couldn't prove that he was still dead. And these men were willing to die to say he was alive. And because of that, it is not Peter and John that are intimidated and afraid. It is the Sanhedrin. And despite all their power and all their influence and all their authority, the bold ones in this, in this scene were the ones under trial. And the scared ones were the ones giving the trial. They were afraid of the crowds. They were afraid of Rome. And now, after the words of Peter in this moment, they were afraid of Peter and John. And so they had to make strategy. They had to figure out how to deal with this. And we see this if we go back to John 11 again, and we can see how Caiaphas, who was mentioned in our passage, how he responded to all this. John chapter 11, starting in verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You are not considering that, that it is to your advantage that one should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this of his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. See, Caiaphas, who, who was there in Acts chapter 4, he never even stopped to consider that Jesus might actually be the Messiah. When he saw him, when we heard him teach, when he was there for, for the signs and wonders, not at any moment did he ever think that this guy might actually be the Messiah. All he thought was, it is best for us to get rid of him. Because if we get rid of him, if we allow the one to die to preserve what we have, that is far better than risking that he continue on and it cost us everything. And so now they're here in this moment and they're same with the same thought process and the same mindset. They don't care whether the claims of John and Peter are true. They didn't care, didn't care whether the claims of Jesus was true. They only cared in keeping what they had and getting rid of those who might threaten it. And so we see what they did. He said, so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in the name of Jesus again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. What are we going to do? We can't deny the claim. If we reject him, if we arrest him, the people might turn on us. Can't do that. We need the people. Well, what do we do? What happens if we let them go? Well, if we let them go, they're going to keep preaching that this Jesus guy is the Messiah. What do you think he is the Messiah? Ah, I'm not dealing with that right now. 
They'll keep preaching that this Jesus guy is the Messiah, and they're going to talk about the resurrection, and they're going to talk about a new kingdom in him, and they're going to talk about all these things. And eventually, the Romans are going to notice. And if the Romans notice, and they think we're losing control, they may come in, and they may take control. And if they take control, then I'm out of a job, and you're out of a job. And you know what happens if we're out of a job? We're not going to eat as good as we're eating right now. And our life's not going to be easy as it is right now. And things are going to change. And I don't want things to change. Do you? No. What are we going to do? Well, I guess there's only one thing we can do. Let's threaten them. And let's see if maybe we still have just enough intimidation to get them to shut up. Do you know the world does that to you? The world does that to you. The world can't stop you. The world can't keep you from talking to people about Jesus. But the world doesn't like it. And so the world intimidates us. And tries to convince us that, 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 that the world has all of the influence and all the power. And that if you, if you hold on to your faith and you be a proclaimer of Jesus, that it'll cost you something. And what it costs you will be too much. And so the world does. That the world does try to threaten you and intimidate you to be silent. Because make no mistake, the enemy's favorite kind of Christian is a quiet Christian. That's the best kind. If, if Satan can, if you come to know Christ, if you, maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you, maybe it was camp, maybe it was vacation Bible school, maybe it was a youth rally or a rap concert, and you give your life to Jesus. And Satan can't have you anymore. Then the number one thing that Satan's going to try to do is get you to be quiet. Be quiet. Don't let anybody know you're a Christian. Just live your life. Do what everybody else does. Don't stand out. Don't be different. Don't talk about it. I mean, think, look at our culture today. What are the things that we're not supposed to talk about? Religion and politics, right? Is our world, it, it, would you say, and I, and I don't mean to sound like an old man here for a second, but would you say our world is better off because we don't talk about religion and politics? Are those two areas that America is really just nailing it right now is religion and politics? I hope you don't think that. See, the enemy, if you're going to be a Christian, be a quiet Christian. Don't share your faith. Don't stand out. Don't cause a scene. Be a quiet Christian. That's what the enemy wants. That's what the world wants. But let's, let's take a look at what this spirit-filled Peter has to say to this. I'm going to pick up in verse 18. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you 
rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Their response to this threatening and intimidation is this. We will continue to proclaim the name of Jesus and you are free to do what you want. I want to I remind you of this. We want to think about this and this, this level of boldness. We're going to talk more about the boldness of the early church in the weeks to come, but this level of boldness, where does this kind of boldness come from? And Paul answers that for us in 2 Timothy 1.7. He says this, For God does not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. See, this spirit that was the gift at Pentecost to Peter and John and to all those who are following Jesus is the same spirit that is inside of you today if you are in Christ. And God is calling you to live boldly for him today just like Peter and John did in their day. We will face adversity. There will feel like that, you're, that, you will, that you will have that feeling of no good deed goes unpunished. But I want you to know today that God is doing something in those moments. See, think about this for just a moment, and this is kind of what I wanted you to, to get to today. They... Peter and John have done this good thing. They've healed this man. They have proclaimed the name of Jesus. And because of that, they have been arrested. They have spent the night in jail. They have been intimidated. They have been threatened. They have been been, uh, just treated poorly in every way, shape, and form. But look at this also. Peter and John proclaimed the name of Christ. And because of all of this, all of the the persecution and the intimidation and all that, the entire Sanhedrin heard the name of Jesus. And I imagine in this moment, if there were literally, literally dozens and dozens of men standing there, there were some in that group whose confidence in the law and the Sanhedrin began to waver. Imagine if you were one of those guys that's part of the Sanhedrin. Maybe it's because of family. Maybe it's because of something else. And you're looking, and and Ananias and Caiaphas and the ones that are supposed to have all the answers and know all the things, they're scared out of their mind. But the ones who are proclaiming the name of Jesus are bold and confident. Would there not be maybe, maybe just maybe some of them that went, wait a second. There might actually be something to this. And then you throw in the fact, like, what did happen to the body of Jesus? Well, we don't know. What do you mean you don't know? It's a whole body. Well, we don't know. You don't know. You lost a body? Weren't there Roman guards on them? Yeah. How did a bunch of fishermen steal a body from Roman guards? We don't know. You don't know. Where's Nicodemus? Oh, yeah, he's with them now. What? Can't, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. But what if in this moment at this time, somebody saw their foundation shake and their heart began to be open 
to the good name of the good name of Jesus, to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they looked at these two men and said, these two men are willing to give up everything because they believe they saw Jesus raised from the grave. Maybe I need to listen to these men more and not less. Maybe I need to open up my heart to what they're saying. Maybe I need to be willing to lay all of this down in order to receive Christ. I think this leaves us with one more question today. And that's, what are you going to do? See, the Sanhedrin asked, what are we going to do with these men? But the question for us in this room today is, what are we going to do with these men? And with that, what are you going to do? First off, are you going to believe what they say? Are you going to believe what they say here in in, in verse 12? That there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Are you going to believe that? Are you going to take what these, these men have said and proclaimed to you today and say, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he did rise from the grave, that they did crucify him and God did raise him from the grave. And I believe that and I'm going to place my faith and trust in him. That the words of Jesus are true and that there is salvation in no one else. And I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life. It all, for all of us, it starts there. But then I have to ask you guys, what are we going to do with these men? Are we going to follow their example? Are we going to imitate them as they imitate Christ? Are we going to look at a world, and whether that's our family or our friends or our bank account or our job or whatever it might be, and are we going to look at them and say whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide but we are unable to stop speaking about the things which we have seen and heard. Are we going to follow that example? When our friends tell us, you need to dial down the Jesus thing. Or you can be a Christian and still act like everyone else. Or, hey, we like you, we want you in this job, we think it's great that you're here working and doing all this, we love what you do at, this, at your school or whatever it might be, but you know what? Religion's just not something we want to have people talking about right here. Are we going to look at them and say, whether it's right for us to listen to you or listen to God, we'll let you decide. But we, but I, will not stop telling people about Jesus. And sometimes we have to have that conversation with ourselves. I think the number one thing that keeps us from telling other people about Jesus is not the government, it's not our jobs, it's not our friends, it's not our family, it's us. And maybe as we close out our time together, you need to have a little conversation with yourself. And say, self, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. 
And self, you are not going to intimidate me anymore. And you're not going to stop me anymore. And I don't care what the consequences are anymore. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. Let's pray. My God and King, Lord, I, I just think that we see your grace so real and so alive in this encounter with Peter and the Sanhedrin. And we see what you did with Peter in this passage and how your spirit made Peter so bold and so powerful in this passage. And God, I, I, I want that for us. And God, I pray first and foremost, if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they don't have this spirit of boldness that we receive upon salvation. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they see in our passage the boldness of Peter and the confidence of John and and that they see what they did here. (coughs) And maybe that that would stir their heart to believe. God, for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that, it would, that, that, that our, our story, our storyline, would say that on this day, we were filled with the Spirit, and we began to boldly tell the world about Jesus. God, I know for every person in this room, that's going to look different. And for some, it's going to be with their family. And for some, it's going to be with their neighbor or their coworkers. For some, it's going to be getting on a boat and, and going halfway around the world. But God, for each and every person here, Lord, I pray that you would would stir up the spirit inside of them and that they would become a bold witness for the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that they would look at the things in their life that intimidate them, whether whether it's themselves or something outside of themselves. And they would begin to say that we cannot stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. And that, God, you would do a mighty work through this church. And we would see, like we read in our passage today, thousands would come to know who Jesus is because of the boldness that you give us through the Spirit. Lord, we praise you for that. And, Lord, we see this as your grace and your goodness at work in our lives. And, God, we ask these things in the precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen.